the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We're here to support your company and your employees now and in the future. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. Now, this week, the Cabinet approved a bill to compel employers to publish data on gender pay gaps. We'll be examining that later with Laura Slattery of the Irish Times and Marguerite Bulger, a senior counsel and expert in employment law. In the second half of the show, you'll hear from John Brown, founder of Irish technology company Castus, who gives us an update on the company's progress, having won the overall prize at the Irish Times Innovation Awards last year. But we'll start, as always, with a roundup of some of the main stories of this week with Irish Times business reporter Peter Hamilton. Peter, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks, Carol. Uh, We're going to start with tax and the fact that more than one million workers won't pay any income tax this year. It's quite staggering. Yeah, it is. Uh, The number of tax-exempt income earners is now approaching 2007 highs. Uh, And I suppose the figures also show that over three quarters of a million won't pay USC this year. So just back to the income tax, first of all, that's uh, levied for single earners on incomes over €16,500. And USC, that kicks in over €13,000. So it has long been a policy of of successive governments to remove people from the tax net. Low-income earners, basically. Uh, Low-income earners, rather, yeah, remove them from the the net. It's a shocking Uh, statistic, I suppose, in in two ways. One, it it demonstrates how many people are actually on low incomes. Mm. And secondly... Uh, it shows that roughly half the workforce isn't paying any tax, roughly speaking. It's about, what, 2.1, 2.2 million income yeah. earners uh, in Ireland or people in employment in Ireland, so let's presume they're earning income. And, you know, roughly speaking, half of them uh, or thereabouts aren't paying any income tax, which on the face of it seems a little bizarre because surely we should all be contributing to our society in some way, shape or form, in a proportionate kind of way. It is unusual and I think Ireland is probably slightly unusual in this regard. If you look to Germany, for example, somebody on an income of €18,000, they'll pay €4,500 in tax. Here, the same person will pay €510. Now, Obviously, there are different public services in Germany as there are to here. And, and for, for mm. example, here, the health system isn't wonderful, uh, you know, things like that. So perhaps that's what why there is such a discrepancy, because some public services aren't deemed to be up to the same scratch as they are in other European countries. Uh, but it, it is it is undoubtedly quite a shocking statistic. And, and uh, as Cliff Taylor was writing today, he gave a cautionary note. He said, once people are taken out of the net, they can't be put back in. So if we keep taking people out of the net... There will ultimately Just explain be, that to us. Well, well, his his idea was that with these successive governments having a goal to reduce uh, reduce tax for low income earners, it it becomes politically unpalatable for governments to put those low earners back into the tax net once they've been taken out. And and I, I assume uh, it will remain to be politically unpalatable until such time as we have another recession. So. It's, we're unlikely to see it this time round, one would have to expect. Yeah, OK. Talking about recession, uh, Christine Lagarde, mm. uh, the head of uh, the International Monetary Fund, was in town and she had something to say uh, about how Ireland dealt with the recession and the austerity years post the 2008 financial crash. Yeah, she said a lot while she was here. Now, she had very, very high praise indeed for the way that the Irish and the Irish government of the day and the central bank of the day uh, dealt with the economy. Here she is talking in DCU earlier this week. I pay tribute to the, the leadership of, of Ireland in those days, uh, from, from Prime Minister to uh, Central Bank Governor to uh, Finance Ministers, of course. They, they knew that they had to grit their teeth, smile and get on with it, and that there would be some hard decisions, hard measures that had to be applied. 
in order to restore uh, the position of, of the Irish economy. So while she was impressed by the state's growth and employment, uh, she mentioned that earlier in the week, she did say that it's imperative that the government be prepared for external shocks. Some of those that she flagged were the anti-trade sentiment that we hear at the moment and the temptation for protectionism and particularly internal member states in the euro uh, area uh, responding often on a national approach rather than a a European community approach. And we see that, for example, to some extent in Italy at the moment. Uh, she, she spoke about a wide range of topics when she was in uh, Dublin City University yesterday with the president of the university there. Sorry, Pierre, can I just stop <coughs> it there? Because a yeah. lot of people listening to that clip, a lot of ordinary people, taxpayers in Ireland who were whacked during the recession mm. or people who lost their jobs, had to take pay cuts or uh, ended up having to pay more tax. They might say, well, it's not very well for Christine Lagarde to come into town, to stroll into town, uh, you know, in her high paid job in the IMF, uh, living in an ivory tower. She didn't experience any of, the, uh, any of this uh, austerity. Uh, it was the Irish taxpayers who shouldered the burden. So it's all very well congratulating the central mm-hmm. bank and the uh, government for the measures they took. But all they did was inflict misery on ordinary people. And perhaps the context around that clip would have been useful. She, she did go on to say after that 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 was her sense from looking in and that the, the internal experience could have been very different. And, and she did acknowledge that people had tough times and, and, and did endure austerity for a number of years, but that that was her perspective from the outside. Now, I think her perspective is a valid one because it, it is on a, it is from a particular viewpoint. Her, her, well, it certainly is, yeah. It's from but, the viewpoint that, uh, listen, guys, well done. You, you took all of the austerity measures that we proposed yeah. and uh, you inflicted on the poor people of Ireland uh, and they suffered on and uh, great, well done. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and that probably feeds into what she was saying about a European community approach, and and she is a Europhile, uh, so so one would have to think those comments are yeah. based in in that belief. But uh, well, there wasn't much solidarity uh, within the European Central Bank now when <laughs> Ireland was going through the horrors post the crash. We were kind of left swinging, but anyway, right, uh, right. What else did she have to say? Well, innovation, on, on, innovation, on, and education, on innovation and climate and change. Education. Yeah, she had a lot to say uh, on Brexit. It's worth noting that she she said she hoped for continued free movement. Uh, and then on the trade war, she called it a frustration and she said it would reduce business confidence and ultimately change investment decisions. The people probably won't invest in the US or at least they'll put off those decisions until tariffs are cleared up a bit. Uh, also, she said that these trade wars are moving focus away from reducing inequality, uh, cha- dealing with climate change, reducing excessive debt and increasing productivity. So she she wasn't uh, very complimentary of, of the trade tariffs that are... Uh, being, being introduced at the moment and, and finally on housing in Ireland she said public investment is critical but that her conversations with the government lead her to believe that we're heading in the right direction Right, okay uh, Right, well now uh, on the issue of trade on the broader issue of trade uh, Donald Trump has been hitting out at Harley-Davidson Harley-Davidson uh, of course make those famous motorcycles and they've decided that because of the tariffs being imposed by the Trump administration that they're going to have to move some uh, some manufacturing, some of their operations to within the EU to basically sidestep um, the tariffs that are going to be put in place. And Trump is not a happy bunny. No, he's not. Uh, and he said that the company will be taxed like never before as a result of their decision to move outside uh, of the US. Harley Davidson's view on this is that they can't... Revving pa- up the pressure, Peter. Uh, indeed. <laughs> but, uh, but their view on this is that they can't pass on these tariffs to consumers. 
What uh, kind of tariffs are we talking? Twenty five percent for a Harley Davidson. Yeah, stiff. Uh, it, it's heavy enough, and and there are there are you know concerns that Harley Davidson will be doubly hit if they are paying for steel imports to the US. So without doing something like this, the the, the cost of Harley Davidsons will go up yeah. quite. Do we know how many Harley Davidsons are shifted in Ireland? Around a hundred a year in Ireland, uh, as far as I know, um, it, it's not very many. And I suppose the thing about these the the headlines we've seen about these trade tariffs so far is that. Uh, a lot of consumers won't feel a pinch because people won't buy Harley Davidsons regularly and they may not buy bourbon regularly. Now, Jack Daniels, of course, saying that the cost of their product will go up by about 10% as they deal with the tariffs. For consumers. For consumers, yeah. Uh, okay, and Jack Daniels and, and Coke uh, used to be a, a favourite tipple of Irish people many years ago. I'm not sure it is so much now. Perhaps mm. Irish whiskey has... Uh, has well, certainly if they were buying Jack Daniels and orange juice, that would be prohibitively expensive. Because uh, orange juice Floridian, from Floridian orange juice is going to become more expensive. It's going well. to become more expensive for all right. And uh, uh, what about uh, on the other side? I mean... Um, We've imposed a tax on bourbon. Is Trump likely to impose a tax on whiskey coming out of Europe? That is the big concern, and it's the big concern from an Irish exporter's point of view. Uh, Simon McKeever from the Irish Exporters Association, I was just having a chat with him earlier, and he, he was saying that this would likely decimate uh, Irish uh, uh, imports into the US, Irish exports to the US of whiskey. And the US has been the key growth market for Irish whiskey exactly, over the past yeah. decade es- or so. Especially for the new brands, the new brands which we are seeing so many of now, and gin. So so whiskey and gin could be in the firing line if, if Trump is particularly upset by this attack to his, his heartland with these products. Right. Okay, Peter, we live there. Thank you for joining us. Now, for the past couple of years, there's been increased momentum towards more transparency around gender pay balance among our leading companies and institutions. And this week, the Cabinet approved a bill to compel employers to publish data on gender pay gaps in Ireland. The regulations will apply to employers with 250 or more staff. It'll later apply to those with 150 or more. And finally, for those with 50 or more, and it will apply to the public as well as the private sector. In addition uh, to differences in hourly pay, information on differences in bonuses, part-time pay and the pay of men and women on temporary contracts will be among the data that must be published. And joining me in studio now to discuss the implications of this <coughs> are Marguerite Bulger, a senior counsel and expert in employment law, and Laura Slattery of the Irish Times. Uh, start with you, uh, Marguerite. What do you make of this proposed new law? Well, I think anything that tries to address the gender pay gap is certainly to be welcomed. Um, I think something that gives people the ability to challenge uh, what they believe to be unequal pay is extremely valuable. Equal pay has obviously been around since mm. 1974, but in fact, if you look at the case law, there's not that many cases in recent past. It's quite difficult to assert a right to equal pay, not so much the right to equal pay, but it's difficult to prove that someone has been paid less on grounds of their gender. And that's where the real challenge lies, because if an employer can prove that the unequal pay was on grounds other than gender, then that's a good defence. So the challenge for and usually a woman asserting uh, a right to equal pay is to prove that there is actually a man who has been paid more than her. So this is a huge step in terms of empowering people to identify inequality that they may not even be aware of. And I sometimes think it's interesting in this country, people are perhaps a little more private about their salaries Mm, than, for example, in the UK, where people just anecdotally, people tend to discuss a little bit more or maybe show off a little bit more about their bonus or their salary. And here it's very private. So while someone might just about know what salary a colleague is on, because that might be available information, can be quite difficult to identify whether or not they're being paid bonuses. So this is a not insignificant step towards hopefully empowering people who perhaps are victims of unequal pay without actually realising that they are victims. Yeah, of course, we've had a couple of high-profile cases, haven't we, 
in this country um, that have emerged. Let's say Brian Dobson and Sharon Viola on uh, 6-1 newsreaders, previous 6-1 newsreaders, where it emerged that Brian Dobson was getting substantially well, you see, more. When you say, Kieran, when you say case, uh, I would say situation, because that's the point. No litigation arose from that situation. So, yes, we have situations that have been identified, but very little that actually becomes cases. People are fairly reluctant to embark on litigation, naturally, unless they have, they can be reasonably confident that they're going to win. And it is, it's tough enough uh, litigation, particularly where an employer, if they can uh, show that ostensibly it's on grounds other than gender, then the employee will not win. So what hopefully what this will do is enable more cases to be brought from what are current simply situations. Okay, so you see a lot of litigation arising from this. I certainly see a situation where a lot of people who might not actually be aware of the fact they're suffering unequal pay will at least now be informed of it or have a way of informing themselves on it. And hopefully uh, that will lead to, may not actually lead to litigation, because if people assert their rights, then it may be that a company will recognise what the right thing to do is. Mm. Um, So again, it might not be litigation, but ultimately if people don't listen and if people don't respond appropriately. How much, I presume a lot of companies are going to come out and say, listen, a lot of this is down to legacy issues. You know, it's down to the fact that over a number of years, uh, a bunch of men, let's say, uh, rose to the top of the organisation, were paid a lot of money. Uh, and maybe in certain professions where maybe there were usually men uh, employed in roles, maybe as bus drivers or, uh, I don't know, as pilots or something something like that. And, you know, that's changing over time and mm-hmm. give it 10 years and uh, and the position will be a lot different. I presume a lot of companies are going to assert that. I mean, Ryanair, for example, in the UK, a very small number of uh, female pilots uh, in their on their roster. Uh, but I'm sure companies like that will say, well, look, this is a bit of a legacy issue uh, here, you know, and over time it'll be addressed. Well, I mean, one of the reasons, I mean, we know there is an ongoing uh, gender pay disparity, a little bit less in this country than in, in throughout the EU, but we know it is there. Part of the reason it is there that traditionally women have tended to go for the not so high paying jobs. So a classic example would be women tending to veer towards administrative jobs, whereas men tending towards, say, the IT jobs. IT is paid more than administrative. That in itself is not unequal pay in the law because it's it's not like with like. So there are definitely issues around the gender pay disparity that the law is not in itself going to challenge. There's a big problem with this idea of sort of occupational sex segregation, the idea of the traditional women's work being paid less than traditional men's work. So, for example, a huge area of developing available work is the whole caring industry as we move more towards, say, elderly people being cared for in their own home. There's lots of employment available in that area. That tends to be women. That tends to be quite low paid. Um, So there are bigger policy issues, I think, if we really want to challenge the ongoing gender pay disparity that the law alone is not going to be able to challenge. So your example of, say, traditionally men tend more men being pilots or most of the pilots being men or whatever it might be, um, that the law on its own is not going to challenge that. But perhaps there is a fairly ambitious case to be made for challenging the inequality and perhaps even illegality in occupational sex segregation in identifying what are traditionally women's role and not paying them as well. Certainly the law at the moment would be hard-pressed to challenge that, but it is a, a very good thing to aspire towards. Yeah, sure. Laura, we don't have very much information on the gender pay gap at Irish companies, uh, but one of the organisations here that has produced a report is RTE. Uh, you've written about that yourself and it showed a, a pay gap of 4%, which is below the, the national average, which is believed to be around 
14%, even though that data is a little bit out of date, uh, as it were. But you, you covered that RT data. How robust is it? Um, well, it, it concentrated only on its employees rather than its contractors. So it was a small pool. But within that, um, although it came out overall quite well in when comparing to the national average, there was still, you know, quite a heavy um, concentration of men in particular uh, roles in the newsroom for which they were being better remunerated than um, their female uh, counterparts or rather they were not at the same, hadn't been promoted to the same level. So there's all kinds of issues there to do with uh, equality of opportunity. I think overall this um, gender pay gap legislation, when it eventually comes in, is about the disinfectant of sunlight, as the phrase goes. And as journalists, um, we have to welcome that, uh, especially as it's going to apply across all sectors, um, eventually to companies with 50 employees or more. We've had a very valuable exercise in Britain um, this year, and it's the first of, of many annual exercises to come where all the companies were required to report their mean and their median uh, gender pay gap uh, for both hourly pay and bonus pay, which is where a lot of the sort of the hidden deals <laughs> occur. And we even saw where where some companies had done okay on the hourly pay. They, when it was when the bonus pay was looked at, we we found that the, the men were being uh, awarded much much higher amounts. Now I think we need to sort of distinguish uh, between the gender pay gap, which is a result of various societal factors and pay discrimination. And the numbers that were are reported under the British exercise and will be under this Irish exercise um, are is the gender pay gap, which may have arisen for all kinds of reasons, but it doesn't preclude uh, the existence of illegal um, pay <coughs> discrimination on gender grounds, which is why um, people believe that it will uh, be the first step, shall we say, to to some cases being taken. So it's actually, you know, we've had Me Too. This is Pay Me Too, and it's. I think it's a, it's a it's a welcome development. Mm. Mind you, it didn't include the big earners, did it? You know, the outside contractors like uh, Ryan Tuberty, for example, who's the highest earner in, in RT, and in fact, a number of the highest earners are, are men. Well, I mean, that's it. I mean, I just want to take the media as an example because it, it, it is it is a good example. It was something, you know, there was something like only two out of 10 of Ortiz's highest earners are, are female. And we saw a very, very similar situation in the BBC uh, in when they released some figures there in Britain, which, you know, suggests, you know, across borders that we're seeing the same pattern and we're seeing it at this elite level where you can't really necessarily say this is to do with childcare costs or um, decisions that individual women had made, which is often what we get told. It's to do with career decisions women have made. These w- these are very high-profile women who had, were making the same career decisions as men, and yet they still weren't earning quite the same am- amount. So what that tells me is that there's almost a pattern of valuing men more than women. Um, at the opposite end of you should you could say of of this uh, situation, we ha- were beginning to see cases um, of supermarket chains in the UK being sort of coming under fire for paying the sort of largely male dominated warehouse workers more than their checkout workers, which are mainly female and. The people are questioning why is warehouse being valued more than checkout? Does the mix of skills required for both? 
why is it necessarily the case that the one that is male-dominated is being paid more than mm. the one which is no, largely no. female? And, and ultimately, just even on that, Laura, what that requires is someone, you know, say of the checkout group, uh, to have the courage to come forward and actually challenge it. You know, so whilst the law does have huge capacity to bring about change, at the end of the day, we as lawyers can only work with cases that we get the opportunity to deal with, whether that comes through um, uh, uh, the trade unions, identifying people and backing the litigation, or sometimes just an individual putting their hand up and saying, I think this is wrong. Yeah, mind you, the, the trade unions are probably representing the warehouse employees that's, just as they are the checkout employees. And that's a huge challenge. That, well, that in itself, that's not a huge problem because in, in, in an equal pay situation, you're looking to equalise up, not down. So in fact, bringing the pay of the checkout workers up shouldn't in itself challenge the warehouse operatives. What can cause a problem and uh, might be, I suppose, of some relevance to some of the unions, certainly be a big issue for a lot of employers, is the knock-on effect. So the idea of a small group, perhaps their pay being brought up, but if they're linked in a, if there's a built-in hierarchy, that's where uh, an an equal pay situation can be a a, a significant challenge. Uh, But just on the other point about, say, the high-profile women, and you made the point, Laura, it's a very valid point about how childcare and and the whole caring role that women choose to take on, that being sort of blamed for, and undoubtedly the statistics show the, the the gender pay gap really kicks in for women in their late 20s and their childbearing years. But two big issues is one is it doesn't level off when women return into the workplace full time where they choose to do that. But even more sinister is the fact that the gender pay gap is kicking in before women have their children. And I have yet to read anything that explains why that is other than there is a view about so, the value. Do we have evidence to, oh, yeah. to back that up? Yeah, yeah, yeah there's a, a, a statistical evidence been done by the Institute for Fiscal Studies, for example, in the UK, have identified the pay gap widening for women in their late 20s and undoubtedly linked to women having children, but has also identified a gap, not as wide, but has identified a gap kicking in as soon as women literally move into jobs straight from university. I mean, this is also the age group where promotions start to occur. You know, that it feels like that women are coming out of, of, of university well qualified, better qualified than men in, in some sectors. But that when time comes for promoting people up the chain, that starts to shift in a, quite dramatically in favour of, of men. And we, we don't see the same uh, fatherhood uh, pay gap uh, pay penalty, I should say, occurring when men become fathers. So it, it does sort of point to, OK, it's society, but also there's an expectation, it, it seems, or an inbuilt attitude on the part of employers. I, I, what I, I what I hope is that we start to see a more sophisticated kind of conversation around it so that even where, you know, employers like Ryanair, which you mentioned, can say, oh, well, we have um, 67% in its case uh, gender pay gap in the UK um because we don't have that many female pilots well they you know easyjet or you know its nearest uh, rival in that market can say well our gender pay gaps only 52% why is that it's because we've made more of an effort to recruit female pilots so we can look at companies in the same sector and say which one has the better practice than the other of course, EasyJet had a female CEO at one point, so maybe that had uh, something to do with it. Marguerite, what's the gender pay gap like in the legal profession? Oh, gosh, there's a good question. Uh, I have 
that that'd be a very difficult question to answer in terms of my side of the profession in the bar because we're all self-employed. So I'm not sure that is actually information that would be available. Um, certainly, there are there is a huge fall off at the bar of women at a certain point. It is clearly linked to family and choices that people wish to make. It is not a profession that is compatible with working part time. And that is uh, a choice that many women make and should be encouraged to make. But it's very, very challenging to see how do you uh, how do you organize what is a self-regulating profession in order to take account of something like that. It's very difficult to see how you could ever apply gender quotas or anything like that, even if one was comfortable with that. And it's not a, a space that many people are comfortable mm. uh, with. But in a, in a profession that is self-regulating, I can certainly tell you that the statistics for senior counsel, 16% of senior counsel are women, which I have to say, even though I'm one, one of six, them, right. uh, I found that a pretty shocking statistic, only to be shocked a little bit more when I found out that in London, it's 15 point, I think, 7%. So we're actually right. marginally better than in London. But there is seriously but I just wonder, disturbing statistics. Obviously, it's all about the quality of the gigs you get um, from, from... There would from certainly be a view, and these are very generalised statements, there would certainly be a view, for example, that, and it comes back to the notion of women veering towards particular areas of work, there would be a, a view that commercial work is the best paid and that family law work is the least remunerative. Crime actually is another area that wouldn't be as well paid as commercial. Now, actually, you'd probably have a lot more men than women in crime. You undoubtedly have significantly more women in family law and that would traditionally be seen as a a less well paid. And in commercial law, there would be a a greater uh, number of men. And is there any sense, let's say in commercial law, maybe you don't know the answer to this and that's fine, but is there any sense that on the commercial side, for example, that the best gigs are given to men rather than women or most of the best gigs are given to men rather than women? I suppose you're asking me to maybe make a very speculative and perhaps somewhat personalised comment. And again... I couldn't answer that question simply because it's not my particular area. I suppose I can talk about my particular area. Um, I can confidently say that I certainly don't feel that I don't get work that goes to men. I don't feel that I get work that isn't as well paid as men. But I'm very lucky in my work that to some extent you get to choose the type of work you do. So the choices you make might impact on your financial bottom line. but uh, I could certainly, and I'd be comfortable in saying that there would be certainly a view that, uh, well, I think it's fairly obvious you walk into the commercial court and it's fairly uh, uh, dominated by men. Um, again, that perhaps that's to do with choices people make. Perhaps it's to do with a greater value being put on what are have, have panned out as being somewhat traditionally male areas. Um, Laura? Yeah, I mean, I just think this legislation, if it comes out the way I hope it comes out, which will involve would involve a searchable, entirely transparent website of all the all the companies um, involved as as has happened in Britain. It will allow um, job seekers to you know check out what kind of company. It becomes a reputational issue. Yeah, well, it does. I mean, we've seen um, from a study done by Mercer that two-thirds of, of companies are actually concerned about the risk to their reputation from having to publish their gender pay gap data. Now, that tells me that they they know that what's going on in their companies and they know they're very unequal um, environments. So 
you know, at the same time, they do support the principle, it seems, of, of, of the legislation. But I think it has the potential to be empowering uh, for, for some women um, who are in a position to choose or they can at least uh, have a look at, at, you know, if there's some companies that are just got terrible, terrible way, you know, above the average gender pay gaps. You know, they can decide themselves, well, okay, am I going to be the woman who beats the odds at this company? Or, you know, can I ask them, you know, the famous any more questions part of the interview? Uh, (laughs) What are you doing? What are you doing to to, to close this gap? And and they might say, well, we're going to hire you and give you a big salary and a big bonus. And you'd be like, great, thanks. I'll be I'm in. But equally, you might walk away from such a company, which, you know, if you've got that choice, then I think that's great because you don't want to you know a lot of women have had the experience unfortunately of taking jobs that the, in 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 places that they later found out to be dreadfully sexist and it just if we can do anything to sort of get to eradicate that um, then I think we, we, we have to welcome well, it. In fact, the Irish legislation looks like it's going to go further than the UK legislation, which has been mostly about name and shame. Mm-hmm. Now, name and shame is useful insofar as it goes, but it looks like the Irish legislation will actually have a bit more teeth in terms of its enforcement. So it looks like they'll be giving jurisdiction to the courts to fine companies who don't comply and allow individuals to bring applications to the circuit court seeking compliance with the obligation to publish. So I think that's certainly something that we seem to be usefully learning from the UK experience of bringing it further than just name and shame. Which country, I mean, let's set aside the UK because the UK is fairly new to this as well. Which which country, in your opinion, would be sort of best in class in terms of dealing with this issue? Well, I'll give you an interesting statistic just when I was looking at uh, this this morning in advance of uh, 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 today. Uh, the gap in Britain is... M- a little bit worse than here. So we're, I think, uh, 11%. The EU is 17%. London is 20, over 20%. But Northern Ireland is actually quite low. That's something like 7%. But the reason for that is the gender pay gap is always narrower in the public sector than in the private sector. And Northern Ireland uh, would have a strong uh, level of public sector employment. So there's Mm. a... An interesting that in itself, I'm not sure that that's the answer. Um, but in terms of uh, you know, if you look at the statistics, uh, one country or one jurisdiction doing better than another could also reflect the private public level of employment. So it's just going to open up a can of worms, particularly in the state sector. I mean, there must surely be some of this going on in various state agencies and so not forth. nearly so much, I think, in the state sector because much more transparency about uh, things like bonuses. A um, little bit, say, around acting up allowances in terms of digging into that sort of thing. But generally, state sector, much, much, much more transparent. It's the private sector, the, the hidden benefits like bonuses, like allowances or like long term bonuses, that sort of thing. That's where I think this is going to to open up the ability to challenge. That also then begs the question whether or not employees in the private sector will be as willing to challenge as employees in the public sector. Generally, public sector employees would be much more comfortable about challenging uh, inequality because I think probably would see it as less of a risk to their future career, whereas someone in the private sector sometimes can be much more reticent about actually taking it on. Probably more likely to simply say, do you know what, you can stick your unequal job and move elsewhere. So ultimately, the solution may not be in litigation, but rather in what Laura says in terms of retention issues, recruitment issues, kind of back to the name and shame. Um, Personally, I think whatever actually improves the situation is a good thing. This legislation will undoubtedly help 
in improving the situation. I was speaking with uh, Chuck Robbins, who's the global CEO of uh, Cisco, and he was in Dublin this week to meet staff and uh, uh, announce uh, some new investment and so forth. And when he took over three years ago, there was a, a gender pay gap uh, within Cisco. And one of the ways that he found to tackle it was to insist that for all interviews, for all jobs, uh, in the future, it had to be 50% uh, male and 50% female candidates went forward for those jobs. And he figured that over time, uh, you know, the best people would be selected yeah. for the jobs and you would get a balance uh, between men and women uh, over time in in various roles. Uh, it seems like a fairly practical way to go about it. It, it is. Now, it's it's, it's not far out. It, it is an effect to gender quota. And I think any discussion about gender quotas is always very difficult. I heard Louise uh, Phelan in PayPal speak about gender quotas at a Women's Day event uh, uh, last year. And I found what she had to say extremely powerful when she talked about coming to believe in gender quotas, but very reluctantly. It's not something, and I think particularly, to put it bluntly, when you're a very successful woman and you have achieved and all of that, to have any sort of suggestion that your achievements is simply because you're in there as a token woman is really quite offensive. Um, But the reality is getting women to put themselves forward is a real challenge. You're back to the sort of Sheryl Sandberg lean in, all of that sort of stuff. Um, And very often when you look at the level of successful recruitment, you have to look at, well, what what were the statistics at the application level? So bringing forward that 50-50, what is is a gender quota, is, I think, a really good thing. But you're back to the fact that there are men who would otherwise have gone forward and women who might not have, um, and that's going to be very challenging. But this is a huge problem and it is not going to be solved without really tough, hard decisions like at least considering gender quotas. Yeah, at least there is some practicality to it because if you take uh, in politics, for example, Tony Blair, uh, you know, insisted that there could only be women in certain uh, constituencies because he wanted to bolster the number of uh, women MPs in Parliament and Fine Gael did something similar in the last uh, election. Well, wasn't it the state imposed a 40% uh, quota that the the political parties wouldn't get funding unless there was a 40%? uh, And again, these are hard decisions and you'll always get a man who'll say, but I'm being denied access even though I'm the best candidate. And women can sometimes be more reticent about putting themselves forward. But uh, the fact that there was another statistic that says that uh, the gender pay cap isn't actually going to the the World Economic Forum has said it's going to take until 2,186, 170 years from now, to actually bring the gap together. This is huge and it's only going to be solved by big, brave solutions that have to at least include considering some sort of gender quota. Okay, I think you've just undermined my final question, which was for Laura. I was going to ask her if in 10 years' time we might look back and say, well, this was the first brave step in uh, bringing about gender uh, pay equality. Um, Well, I do plan on being filthy rich in 10 years' time, (laughs) but and I wasn't planning on living another 170 years, so I I hope so, is the answer to that question. (laughs) Okay. Okay, we'll leave it there. Uh, Laura Slattery and Marguerite Bolters, thank you very much. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. When we return, I'll be talking to Casas founder John Brown about the company's progress since winning the overall Irish Times Innovation Award last year. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. 
Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. Now, the Irish Times Innovation Awards for 2018 are currently open for entries. The deadline is close of business on Friday, July 6th. So do get your entries in. Uh, recent overall winners include semiconductor company Aralis, whose technology has been used in space. And Aralis won in 2016 and secured 50 million euro in investment last year. And last year's overall winner was Castus, which recently closed out a 3 million euro venture funding round. And it has plans to increase its headcount significantly and to scale up its sales and marketing operations. And I'm delighted to say that I'm joined in studio by company founder, John Brown. John, you're very welcome to Inside Thanks, Business. Um, just tell us a little bit about uh, Castus. Um, you're invariably described as a company involved in antimicrobial solution. What, yeah. what does that mean? Yeah, I guess we're, we're essentially a spin-out from DIT where our core technology was developed over a period of about 10 years. And uh, it basically is an antimicrobial solution that could be used on ceramics and glass. So two hard surfaces that are typically very very difficult to apply coatings to that will last and will be effective. Um our so product. it's like a sealant, almost. It's, it's factory applied, so it's not something you could turn up to a building and spray on, um, which is a positive. So it, it's factory applied in that it's sprayed onto the tile just before kiln firing. So it's typically been very difficult to get a coating that will survive those high temperatures of kiln firing, which are in excess of 1100 degrees Celsius, whereas our coating does and actually needs that high temperature to activate it. So the novelty then is that it's indoor light activated, so it uses light moisture in the air to generate uh, a photophysical action that will disrupt bacteria cell wall and kill them. And there, there are another number of added benefits as well in terms of our products will make sanitary ceramics, for example, hydrophilic, so it makes them easy clean, um, that uh, liquids sheet off. And it also will reduce uh, production rejects in ceramic manufacture which we're seeing is a probably a bigger benefit than some of the other benefits we can bring, where these massive ceramics manufacturers are very much um, incentivized to increase throughput. They're pretty much all running at full capacity, and anything we can do okay. to, to help that uh, is a big so plus. who are the end customers here? Is it consumers? Is it hospitals? Is it clean tech labs? We're, we're very much B2B. So, unfortunately, uh, we won't ever have any customers in Ireland. There aren't any ceramics or glass producers in Ireland. So, there is uh, one in the UK who we're working with. Um, but they're global ceramics producers, you know, well, well-known well names, brands that you'll see on sinks and toilets and so on. Plus, also then, global glass manufacturers, of which, again, there are a small number, but they're pretty much spread throughout the globe. And we're working at the moment with companies for example, to use our coating on external glass and building facades that makes it self-cleaning. Also, we have some interesting projects. Uh, we're working with a company to apply our products on uh, glass tubes, which are used mm. in um, in algae farms, where algae growth is, uh, is, is propagated. And our product will reduce the cleaning cycles for those glass tubes, which can double or triple the... Uh, output. Mm. Okay. Don't we have self-cleaning windows at the minute? Uh, there are some on the market. I'm, I'm sure I've uh, heard them marketed, yeah. They typically are organic coatings and they can be delicate. So you can actually remove the coatings quite easily um, just using typical cleaning processes. Ours is unique in that it will be self-cleaning inside and outside and it's 
are coated sinters into the top layer surface of the glass or ceramic that can't be removed. So it's actually 10 times harder than the, the host surface. Okay. So it's extremely durable. So tell us a little bit about Castus. When was it founded? How big is it now in terms of staff, maybe revenues? Sure, yeah. We uh, founded the company just over three years ago. Um, I had been working with DIT in conjunction with Enterprise Ireland for several years to fund development of the project and of the IP in, in DIT. Uh, we got to the point just over seven years ago where we, sorry, over three years ago, where we had a proven, scalable, effective product that we were able to bring to our patent attorneys and either give us a, a green light or not. So, you know, I did we have a product that was patentable globally. Um, they ran the cold eye over it, uh, somewhat skeptically, I would uh, add, because it was one of those technologies that mm. they said at the time was too simple to be, to be true. Um, but we have since secured global patents granted. And uh, we're at the stage where we raised uh, in the region 1.1 million a year and a half ago to hire the core team um, Dr. James Kennedy, our CTO, and his team of technical R&D staff. Uh, in the past quarter, we've started to hire the commercialization team. And uh, we're currently 14, projected to be in the region of 30 people by the end of the year, um, moving into much larger dedicated owned or office space at the moment. And, uh, and where are you at in terms of your revenue stream? Revenue, we're projected to hit in the region of four to five million this year. And uh, we have a pipeline, several multiples of that. So we've, I guess it's it's a long sales cycle, but it's a sales cycle that recurs. So once we land deals with particular customers, it's 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 a continual uh, reven revenue generation sure. stream. So we work with global customers, as I was saying, but they're typically name? innovators. Uh, none at the moment. Uh, there's some, <laughs> uh, a lot of this is, we have to be quite careful in terms of we're under NDA with all of these guys, but uh, we're keen to publicize some of the bigger deals that are due out towards mid to end of summer. And uh, we'll certainly give you a first uh, shout on them. Right, okay. uh, and you did a 3 million funding round uh, just, what, yeah, a matter just, of weeks uh, ago? in the, the recent uh, weeks. Um, so, yeah, that's been... Where's that money um, come from? It's coming from uh, three sources. So mainly our current investment base, which is Atlantic Bridge Capital, the University Bridge Fund. Uh, that's following. Brian Long. Brian Long's behind Brian Long, fund. Chris Horn, yeah. And... Um, they're following their initial investments, so they were in the Series Seed investment, and uh, Enterprise Ireland are also following. And we have um, a Hong Kong-based fund then who are actually leading the round. Okay. So we were, I guess, in the nice uh, position um, where we were oversubscribed, uh, doubly oversubscribed on the round. We, so why not take more money? Uh, we limited it to three because um, we won't need any more. Um, so this is the final funding round. I know that's the most famous gun to the head that any CEO can say, but uh, we're our financial projections do, you know, they, they bear that up. So um, it's raising funds, as you'll probably know from talking to other people, is a, it's a long and difficult road and the, the due diligence processes that go with it. Um, but and it's the something. Legals, yeah, quite. The legals, actually, we have a very good legal team now. We work with uh, John Olden at EFC and. Um, We've managed to compress the, that process and uh, we have a very good 
a very good data suite now that any investor can come in and very yeah. quickly run the rollover. So what valuation has that put on the company? 15 million. Okay. Yeah, which is... Uh, and, and when do you hit break-even or profitability? Uh, Q2 next year. Q2. So it's then, it's very much a, a hockey stick then. Um, our products, the, the margin uh, potential on it is pretty significant. It's huge, yeah. So where to from there? I mean, do you continue building the company? Do you maybe consider a trade sale in a couple of years? Do you look yeah, at an IPO? I guess all of the above, really. Uh, we're too early stage to define one or the other, but we're, I guess we're boxing clever at the moment in that we are technical team is working on a pipeline of new products all of the time. So with DIT and Trinity and, and others. And we have uh, a very exciting anti-corrosive metals coating that's been launched in the early part of next year. And we typically, we probably have the ability to spin out three or four different companies at the moment. And we're structuring them in a way that, you know, if we ever need to do that, we can. And, uh, in obviously tax efficient way as well, we're being advised on all of these uh, the most Options. prudent ways to do it. Yeah. yeah sure. What about the competition? What's the competition like? At the moment, uh, the competition really is not to slag off the competition, but it's chemical leaching. It's uh, it's products that are leaching silvers. Typically, they're using silver as a natural antimicrobial. It's effectively a poison. Um, so silver is under regulatory review in Europe at the moment. It's already banned from uh, a number of uses in Europe and the US. Um, the big differentiator with our product is that it uses a physical action to disrupt the bacteria. It's not poisoning any bacteria. So silver, silver for example, will kill, say, 99% of E. coli in, uh, on a surface. Our product will kill up to and more than that. But the 1% that survives the silver becomes immune to the silver, so becomes essentially a super, super bug. Um, so the silver, is, it's making these bacteria more resistant to, uh, to drugs and to antibiotics, whereas drug, or the bacteria cannot form an immunity to our, our technology because ours is essentially the way we picture it is that you're, you're bursting a balloon, you know? Mm. So it is that physical action. So bacteria can't resist that. John, where did the idea come from? Um, it's probably a number of uh, large brains that uh, were inside DIT and thereabouts. There's some fabulous um, people and uh, ideas um, that sometimes need cold, hard commercial eye to, to assess at an early stage to say yeah or nay and to, to is that your skill set is commercializing these um, things your skill set uh, yeah it would be i guess yeah yeah i'm certainly not a uh, technically minded person i got the opportunity that this brought and uh, got it very early uh, could see that it was a long hard route it's um, it's not something that you can arrive at the door of dit or any of the it's or universities and expect to to walk away with a company in a year or two's time and become a millionaire because it uh, doesn't happen that way. It's a, it's a long, difficult road. Um, there are lots of pitfalls, but uh, we've stuck with it and I think we've done very well. And we've ended up with a product that has real-world appeal. And it's, uh, yeah, sure, and a company valued at 50 million euro, more importantly. Yeah, and that's 15 from three in the space of 
14 months. Right. So, you know. Tell us a little bit a bit about the Innovation Awards. It must have been obviously very gratifying for you to have won the Irish Times Innovation Award, uh, the overall award last year. It, uh, yeah. What has it meant for the company since then? It was, it was funny, actually. I still remember the evening because um, we wholly understood that we wouldn't win an award. Um, some of the, uh, just uh, some of the competition was, you know, the fairly significant players. And uh, I guess maybe was a slight lack of uh, confidence on our side and it, to win it, to win the category award was a great uh, uh, boost for us and to win the overall one. I think they actually had to call us twice in the night because <laughs> <laughs> we were looking around to see who had won it, you know, mm. so it's... Uh, what, did, what difference does winning an award like that make? It's funny, there was a lot of uh, benefits that I hadn't really considered. Um, one at, at the moment is attracting talent um, because we're competing with... You know, the Googles and Facebooks and the, the big pharma companies. And um, we recently, for example, managed to hire a uh, master's chemical grad from UCD. And his whole uh, school, his whole year had been already hired pre-finishing exams by big pharma. But he had read about Castus and approached us. And uh, really? it was he's a fantastic guy. So he'll be starting with us in August. And... I typically find that anyone that turns up for interview has has seen the awards and it's the first thing they will mention, you know. Um, so that's, it's really, it's added credibility there. It's, you know, for a, a relatively young kind of growth stage company, it can be difficult to convince people that you're going to be around in, you know, two years, three years time and to bring people on that journey. And I think to show... So winning awards like this, it really adds credibility to what we're doing. Yeah. Just talking about the skill sets um, that you require, just wondering, the Irish economy going back gangbusters again. Yeah. And we're, we're told that there are all sorts of shortages now of skills in various sectors of the economy, including construction, but tech must be uh, affected as well. Just just wondering how you're getting around that, what you're seeing uh, in the marketplace, if you like, and also what it's meaning for wage inflation. Yeah, wage inflation is an issue, yeah. You have to, you have to pay for good people and... I think we probably even in the last six months would see a 20 plus percent increase on what we typically would have been offering people. Um, I think there are a lot of people who, um, in particular skill sets, maybe in sales, who overvalue themselves. Um, and it makes hiring people in those roles very difficult. It's a, it's a long, difficult filtering process to get to the people who actually have ever sold products, you know. Um, so, but to, to date, we've been lucky. We've worked with a couple of very good recruitment agents and uh, and I've had people through our own networks, through my network in particular, who've uh, sons and daughters who are, you know, graduated in the last two, three, four years. They were, you know, looking to get in with an exciting startup and uh, that's happening. So what kind of salaries can graduates expect, um, roughly speaking? We're seeing in the region of 35 to 40 K. Plus, okay. plus so what about accommodation costs? Because Dublin has become very expensive for yeah, for yeah. people to rent, uh, in particular. Yeah. And you're based in, in Dublin. How big an issue is that for you? I think that's an issue. And that's one of the reasons we're moving out uh, towards Tallah direction at the moment. You're based in uh, DIT in Grange Common yeah, at the minute. Yeah. And it's very difficult, A, for people to get any accommodation in Dublin city centre. Our CTO is living in a, a one-bed flat and he's paying more than I am for a mortgage on a four-bed house. Um, which is, you know, it's painful stuff to see people go through that. But being in Tala, 
allows us to be very near the the Red Cow, um, the Lewis, the M50, and the Nice Roads. The airport, I suppose, isn't too Yeah, far away. everything is within reach, and we've found uh, two recent hires that are actually living in Kildare and commuting in from Kildare, and that, that works for them, you know? Yeah. But um, it's something I, I feel for any young people now who are trying to get a foothold on the ladder or get rental properties. I drove by uh, showing on the way in here today in Rackar, and uh, there must be 50 people queuing. And from what I could see the showing, the viewing wasn't until, until this evening. So, you know, it's... Uh, they're they're it's a showing for a rented apartment. For a rented apartment, for a bed set in Rakar. And, uh, you know, these people, it must be soul-destroying, you know. Mm. And that's before the students are back. Um, so I'd say it'll be mayhem now in August, September. So I don't, uh, I don't envy them. But as an employer... You know, there's only so much we can do as well. We we try and give people some financial incentive to relocate and help out where we can, but um, there's only so much we can yeah, do. Yeah, and you are a yeah. startup, I suppose, as well. Brexit, what impact is that going to have on the business? Uh, no, no, I think from a company commercial perspective that um, it really doesn't matter. Um, companies will sell products uh, regardless of what the bureaucrats and politicians do. There might be some added paperwork. or um, Are tariffs an issue in your area? Uh, they can be mainly at the moment into the Middle East and South America, um, which would realistically be preclude us from some markets, uh, but typically they wouldn't be the very important markets. And typically decent uh, customs clearance agents can get around these things. Um, the UK, I, I would see no difficulty whatsoever in, in uh, supplying products in mm. and, and vice versa. And finally, John, what piece of advice would you have for any young entrepreneur looking to start up their own business? Um, Self-belief. There's a, there's a queue of doubters looking to tell you that you're doing the wrong thing. Um, if you've got an idea and you really back it, go for it and uh, don't doubt it. Any tips but, on how to finance it? Um, probably being uh, forget easy. <laughs> there's lots of knocks along the way. Um I I, tip, I see some young companies and I feel for them the first thing they do once they get some friends, family and fools funding is buy shiny office furniture and oversized monitors, you know, don't just, you know, get the bare minimum, make it last as long as you can and do the best you can with it. Uh, money's hard to get. Uh, it's very easy to spend. And, uh, you know, if you don't succeed with your early investments, it's going to be hard to come back. And I presume you'd encourage people to enter the Irish Times Innovation Awards. Absolutely, Wars. yeah. It's uh, something I personally um, filled out the forms. It only took me about half an hour. And uh, had almost forgotten that I had submitted it when we got the call for the interview. And uh, uh, it's one step I'll never regret doing, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, just to remind everyone that the deadline uh, for the Innovation Awards is close of business on Friday, July 6th. So please do fill in those application forms. And good luck to all of those who enter. John, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Joe. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Peter Hamilton, Laura Slattery, Marguerite Bulger and John Brown. Jennifer Ryan produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget that you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.